You're listening to Amphibicast. Welcome back, everyone. Thanks for joining me again. Uh, this is episode 50, and it's been a long time coming. And um, I've got a really great guest lined up tonight. I've got Zach Herr, who is a very accomplished photographer. And we're going to have a talk about his experiences with dart frogs, as well as some of the techniques and some of the equipment that he uses in his photography. But before that, I do want to just uh, thank everyone who gave some nice five-star reviews on Apple Podcasts. Uh, so I think there were two on Apple Podcasts the other day when I checked. And uh, unfortunately, I can't identify people by name because everyone has a nickname. But if you did leave a five-star review, I want to thank you. That definitely helps me get the podcast out there to a wider audience, which, of course, is what I've always been going for. And those five-star reviews help. So if you are enjoying the podcast and you want to take a few minutes, five-star review is a great way to help. Uh, in addition, I have the Patreon page out there, which I'm not going to plug ad nauseum. But uh, if you do want to support the show, I have two tiers available, very inexpensive. And uh, for the $3 tier, you basically get you know the understanding that you're helping support content that you appreciate. And for the $5 tier, you get a shout-out. And uh, for this week, I want to thank Ricardo Rizzo for his uh, $5 Patreon so, Ricardo, I know you and I kind of talked for a little bit on Instagram, but I want to give you a formal shout out and say thank you for uh, supporting the show, which I appreciate. So, again, uh, if you guys want to support the show, Apple Podcasts, five star reviews, and the Patreon is a great way to help out. But uh, enough about that. Also, on a personal level, I know some of you saw on Instagram I had posted about one of my uh, horned frogs, my uh, Ceratophorus arita, uh, unfortunately did suffer a prolapse earlier last week. And fortunately, I was able to resolve that myself. This is a frog that does need a little TLC. It always has from the beginning. It's kind of got some peculiarities to it. But some of you did reach out to me personally, and that is genuinely appreciated. Uh, the concern and the consideration was definitely taken well. So uh, for those of you who did reach out to me, thank you very much. I, I appreciate that. But uh, enough about that. Let's get into what I really wanted to get into tonight. Zach. Welcome. How are you doing tonight? What's going on? Hey, great. It's good to be here. I'm excited to, always excited to talk about frogs and photography. So doing both in one conversation is going to be great. Yeah, it's 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 a real pleasure. I mean, I had checked out some of your, actually, I, I have one of your prints in front of me right now, the uh, Ranatomea genus um, print, which has got a whole bunch of frogs on it now. And I, I'd actually had one of your prints that I had acquired quite a few years ago i actually have it up in my frog room but um do you want to tell us i mean we're going to get into both topics we're going to get into frogs and photography and everything in between but do you want to start off at the beginning for us why don't you tell us your story what were some of your first experiences with with animals or amphibians and what sort of led you to where you are today sure so i think for a long time, I've always liked animals, especially frogs. Um, I had a, a little dart frog clip on tie when I was really young, so it goes pretty far back. Had some like turtles and frogs and stuff when I was younger. Was like into the idea, not so much into keeping them, and like never really found like that passion at that point. But then I was probably. 18 or 19 in college and I was in a pet store for whatever reason didn't even have animals and I saw they had dart frogs for sale there and just like right there I was like I'm gonna keep these like this is what I'm gonna do and I did not buy them immediately at the pet store for everyone that's probably cringing a little bit right now <laughs> while listening but went home uh this was 
back when Dendro Board was still huge, not that it isn't still around now, but that was the only place to get information. Facebook really wasn't an animal place. And spent a couple months reading on there, found some local Ohio froggers, and got into it from there. I have to ask, and this may sound like an odd question, but why is Ohio like the, the frog mecca here in the U.S.? I mean, we were, we were talking a little bit off air about uh, just you know different guests that I had on the past, and it just seems like like half of you guys are from Ohio. Like everybody's from Ohio. Is it like something in the water down there? I have no idea. I think, I mean, honestly, I think Mike Novi deserves a lot of credit for spreading that influence around. I like Jared. Uh, Ruffing, who I did the Ranatomea poster with and have shot with for a long time. I think Novi's the one that got him into frogs at the Cleveland Reptile Show. So, I mean, he's definitely been around for a while and getting a lot of people excited. But, yeah, I mean, between him, uh, Mike, Jared, Troy, Nick Gamble is getting back into frogs and doing his thing again. There's, and I'm sure there's names I'm forgetting, but like we've got a lot of top people here and it's pretty crazy. And also, saves me a lot of driving when I go do photo shoots because everyone's relatively close. Yeah. I've noticed that, uh, you, you give credit to a lot of keepers with some of your photo shoots. Like I know you did, uh, the, the last one, I think I recall you did one of Troy's frogs, right? You kind of just, mm-hmm. um, visited his collection and, and did some photographs there. Yeah. I mean, really like I don't have a large collection of animals, so if people don't have me over to their house, I'm kind of nothing. So got to give thanks to all those people because would not have this, I guess, hobby slash part-time job career thing I've got. So yeah, I couldn't do it without other people for sure. What came first, though? I mean, obviously, you, you're very, very passionate about dart frogs, but photography, I mean, what which came first? Was it a fascination with photography or a fascination with, with frogs? It was definitely the frogs first. So as I started keeping frogs naturally, when like you're in college and you have to do icebreakers and stuff all the time and you're just meeting people like, Oh, do you have any pets? Like that's the conversation that comes up and frogs is not the answer that a lot of people are expecting. And poison dart frogs is definitely not the answer they're expecting. So I really just picked up a camera because I thought it would be cool to just have like some slightly better photos um, of frogs. iPhones were not where they're at now with their camera capabilities. So I just got like an entry level Canon Rebel, took some photos, um, started to really like that. Uh, And then I was in the business school at Ohio State at the time and it's coming up on my senior year. And I was just uh, honestly kind of over the business school. I really like marketing and everything that comes with that, but I just couldn't connect with the people. And I was like, I'm just going to take a photo 101 class and just see what happens. And I think that's where things really started to accelerate and uh, sort of kick off from there and really lead me to where I'm at now. Were there any professional photographers or was there any specific images that inspired you because i mean i remember and i've i've told everyone this uh this story before but when i was a kid we had national geographic my grandfather subscribed to it and he used to give them to me when i was a kid afterwards sure and there was a a spread about i mean at the time it, it would it, they would have been dendrobates but 
later, you know, it was Ufaga pamilio, and there was this whole spread of the, the strawberry poison frog. And I remember seeing that as a kid and just being so visually impressed by it. I, I never got the image out of my head. And when I did get into dart frogs, that was kind of the image that I had about what they should be like. Yeah, I. it's kind of weird. It kind of came from a couple different angles. So, so I've got... I've got my own frogs. I've got my camera. And he'd been doing it for a while, but Joel Sartore, who does the photo arc for Nat Geo, was starting to pop up on my radar more. And really mostly like his mammal work. He does he does some like reptile and amphibian stuff, but most of his stuff is mammals. So I was seeing that stuff. And then in my photo class, we had one one lesson where we learned about this artist John Baldessari, and he's actually where I got my Instagram username from. And he he was like this very prolific painter in like the I think mid to late 60s, and then sort of took a left turn, burnt all of his paintings, and started just like really challenging what art is. And I saw a video of him in this class where he is just standing in front of a blank wall, sort of waving his arms, and he's just repeating the phrase, I am making art. And I think the, I don't know if rebellious is the right word, but the college student mindset in me was like, that guy's so edgy, he gets it, that's cool. And I sort of connected the dots from there. I'm like, I'm going to take really good frog photos like Joel does, and I'm going to like say that it's like fine art and I'm going to commit to that and I'm going to try and make that happen. And I think early on, like some of it was like sort of a joke or I at least acted like a joke uh, where like, I, like I didn't, I don't know if I fully believed that frog photos were fine art and like museum quality pieces and things like that. But it was just like a mindset I was trying to get into. And then it started to actually become serious and at one point i was like man maybe i should change my username because that's kind of a joke but it was sort of too late at that point and that's where i'm at now your avatar on instagram like you went with a toke gecko is there any reason that you went with that over a frog oh i change it i change it occasionally it's i think the toke one just looks funny to me and it fits that little circle perfectly and that's just i don't know i'll probably change it to something else eventually but that one just makes me laugh a little bit. Everyone likes tokes. I, <laughs> they're such. Uh, I don't want to say nasty because they're not nasty, but well, they. they I use, mean, that one's trying to bite me. In yeah, the photo, so all right. I take back what it. I said. Yeah, they're nasty. <laughs> <laughs> now you're not currently keeping any frogs, correct? Correct. Uh, I was up until about let's see, a year ago now. But my fiance and I bought a house. I had a really big display tank, um, and I was just like, we're moving, we're getting a new house. I don't know what life is going to be like with all this. I'm just going to take a pause from it. Uh, so I sold that tank to uh, Larry, uh, who owns My Green Obsessions. It's a, another, he's got frogs too, but a big plant guy in Ohio. Um, and he came and picked that up and really just bought back the frogs that I had bought from him for the display tank. Which species were you keeping then? Um, potential hot button topic. It was a mixed species tank. 
but I did it so for a sense of scale on this tank. Um, so I I really had Mike Rizzo at Glassbox Tropicals build the tank for me. Um, it was four foot wide, three and a half feet tall, and a foot and a half deep. So pretty big. And I had a group of Salt Creek Familio in there. I had the Phyllobates Lugubris and then the uh, Glass Frogs. So it was a little bit of terrestrial, semi-arboreal stuff with the Pamelio climbing up the cork tubes and then the glass frogs hung out up top. And this was a custom build that was made out of glass or what, what, how was the build done? Yeah, so Marty Made is the tank brand and they're up in Michigan. And I've known Mike at Glassbox for a really long time and always get my plants from him. And the tank was up there. And I was like, well, I don't know how I'm going to get it down here. And he's like, well, I got a truck. I can just put it in the back of my truck, drive down with all the plants and supplies and all that. And they just brought it in the house and assembled it right there. So it was just a, like a typical front opening slide tank like you see basically everyone with now. Were you like a, what's the word I'm looking for? Like a multi-species type of guy where you had a large collection of lots of different species or you just kind of went with one single big display setup? I, the last thing I had was that big display. Early on when I was keeping frogs, I had a bunch of random stuff. Um, I think the most, like I was breeding and selling at the time. I think the most I had at once was probably somewhere between like 120, 150. Um, let's see. Had a lot of dendrobates, cobalt, azurias, leucomelas, which were my favorite. Um, some of the more oddball ones I had, I think they're alabates femoralis. Um, and then, man, I never remember how to say this one. It's the adelphabates quinquevitatis. The like black and white stripe with the orange legs and black polka dots on the legs are kind of wild looking. Um, several different Ranitomea imitators. Um, and then let's see what else. Pamelio, a couple different <laughs> Pamelio, the Phyllobates Lugubri. So I've, I've really had a little bit of every, everything that's available in the hobby, which is pretty fun. That's that's a pretty eclectic collection. I mean, there's not a lot of I mean, there's not a lot of hobby staples in that collection either. Because uh, you you rattle you even rattled off some genera that are not particularly common, at least here in the U.S. Yeah. I know it's different elsewhere, but yeah, it was it was a really fun time, and I really enjoyed doing it. It was again, it's it kind of reached the point eventually with photography where I was like, okay, I can't maintain a large collection and do photography. So I decided to sort of lean more towards the photography because I figured if Jared's going to let me come over and hang out at his house for like eight hours shooting and I get to see all these frogs, I'll get that enjoyment there and then I can go home and relax and not have to turn around and take care of my own collection. Yeah, I guess you could say that the best the best dark frog collection is always someone else's. <laughs> <laughs> yes, yes. I definitely miss it at times, but it's, I don't know, it's fun to go see other people's collections, especially like the massive ones that some of the people in Ohio have that are just absolutely mind blowing. Yeah, I know. Like Tro Troy's collection is, it's not even on par with like human standards. It's like godlike in terms of just how, you know, yeah, just visually it impressive it is. 
Yeah, it's it's pretty impressive. I think I think what I like about Jared's collection is just his dedication to Rayo Tamea. Like that's literally all he has, and he has all of them. So it's it's pretty wild going over there. It's interesting how you can develop a, a fondness for a certain genre. Like um, I I mean I, I've I've kind of slowed down with my collection, and I've kind of focused on. Um, like my bicolors, I'm kind of building up a little colony of bicolors that I'd like to work with as they grow up and grow out. I have one pair that I'm not doing particularly well with, so I'm going to try and introduce some new blood into that. But after a while, it's like I've kind of reached the point where I don't, I mean, I wanted to have every frog you could possibly have years ago. And now it's like, all right, I've got enough. I kind of want to refine what I have rather than get that collector bug again. Yeah, I think I think that's how most people tend to go. You just, you want everything, but then you find out what you really like and you find out the ones that you can actually see that don't hide in the tanks the most. And you can sort of find where you get the most enjoyment, whether it's like seeing them or hearing them call and you sort of focus in from there. Yeah. One of the funny things I always thought was that when you look at, I mean, this, this isn't you, you obviously, but you look at photographs of dart frogs that are, you know, people use them as, um, I don't like to use the term clickbait, but like people use them for YouTube videos, like the, mm-hmm. I guess, you know, whatever the, the thumbnail, that's what they call it. And it's like, it's an Azurius. Like you could find these things anywhere. You know what I mean? And and then to have someone photograph something that's not in that big three, you know, it's, it's not Neurotis, it's not a Lucamellus, it's not, a, it's not a Tinctorius. And then to have someone do like a thumbnail or something from like, an odd genera that you don't normally see in the average person's collection. Mm -hmm. That's, that's pretty impressive. Yeah. I think the weird thing to it, like I get reminded of this constantly, like people will need a photo for like a YouTube thumbnail or something like that. And having been in the hot, I've seen, I've seen erotis like constantly. I honestly don't think I have more than like one or two good photos of them because I spent so much time focusing on chasing like the crazy stuff that people don't see as often, like going to Troy's and all of his like large obligates and stuff like that. And then people are like, Hey, do you have just like a nice picture of a green and black Aratus? I'm like, yeah, sorry, I don't. So that's, that's kind of weird too, how my, my frog keeping and like the photography aspect of it sort of have gone the more eclectic route at the same time. Sometimes I wonder if um, the average uh, layperson who's not into dark frogs realizes the amount of species and locale variability that exists. I mean, e- even among species, like obviously, I mean, Im- imitators and, and, you know, variabilists like Tinctor. I mean, there's the, it runs the gambit. And I had a conversation with someone and he says, oh, they, these things come in different colors. I'm like, no, 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 <laughs> they, <laughs> yeah. no, 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 no. It doesn't work like that. And, and um, it, it gets it gets more complicated too. So like you've got like just having worked on the Rana Tamea poster. So we're looking at the green imitator, for example, and we're trying to figure out how we want to best represent all these frogs. And it's like, okay, there's one green imitator, but then there's different locales, different import lines of those different locales. And it's just like what makes the cut and what doesn't. And on some of them, like if you wouldn't, if you don't really look at them constantly, you'd never be able to tell them apart anyway. So it's it's just it's a mess when you start getting into the details. Yeah, it's almost like when you go like if you ever watch a dog show, 
Like every February, my, my dogs like to watch the dog show, and sure, I'll, I'll see. You know, obviously, there's there's some variation between breeds. I mean, people differ depending on whether it's a show line or, or I mean, I'm a, I've always been a working dogs person. So, you know, if it's a working line or if it's a show line, obviously there's some difference, but you can still kind of identify it. But when you really see the type specimen, then it's like, ah, oh, that's perfect. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. And I think it's, it's hard to, and it gets a little confusing, especially like, I think Pamelia were the hardest ones with this, just because there's so many imports constantly, like, just for the first time, like past couple months ago, I saw there's like Red Frog Hill locale now. And I'm like, oh, is that just like right next to Red Frog Beach where the Bastimentos come from? Like, there's just all these people making like different imports, different names, and it's just further confusing it, I think. But it's, I mean, they're all beautiful. So a lot to like. Yeah, I have the book that was... It's originally, it was in German, and I think it's like the complete Ufaga Pamilio. I, I, I wish mm-hmm. I had the author's names in front of me, but I, I'd acquired the book a few, few, few years ago. And I think, I think it came out maybe in 2015 or 13, somewhere around there. But there's a series of plates that are of different Pumilio locales, and there's got to be like 60 plates. And again, this is going back several years before there were even right. more locales, like you, like you just said coming in on imports yeah it's it seems like a never-ending amount it's it's limited by what is accessible and hopefully legally accessible legally accessible yeah that's a whole other yeah we don't have itself go down that rabbit hole (laughs) i know i i I gotta get a lawyer on this show one day yeah i uh (laughs) i i do want to ask and this is really one of the most important questions that i had for you on the list was You've been published in National Geographic, right? Like, what was that like? Can you tell us about that experience? Weird and like underwhelming is not the right word, but it's a kind of a boring story, I guess. So, um, I did a shoot, and this was probably within like my first year or so of photography. I connected with a guy that also kept frogs, and uh, his name is Rob Denton. And he worked, he still works in salamander research. Um, it's coming back to Indianapolis, I think. But he was at Ohio State at the time. And he was just like working in a lab with unisexual ambistoma, which are really cool salamanders. And sort of on a whim, I was like, hey, like, do you let people come photograph? Like, I know it's a lab. You know, I keep frogs. Like, I know how to like work with these animals. And he said, yeah, sure. So, shot in that lab um i didn't really have much photo equipment yet i literally took a sheet of glass out of a picture frame and sterilized that went to staples and bought a sheet of white poster board uh, a thing of tape and i had two speed lights that were like 50 dollars on amazon and walked into the lab and he said okay you've got to shoot in the room where the salamanders are. And I said, great, where's that? And he said, it's this walk-in fridge right here. So it's this, like, like you'd see in a restaurant, a big industrial fridge that they can keep in, like, the 40s, like, the right temperature for them. And I sat in that cold fridge all day with wet hands with, like, barely any equipment. 
did the shoot, went really well, was really happy uh, with the photos I got. That was my like, first time really messing around with reflections and glass. And then a couple weeks later, his research got picked up for some story on like some online uh, science publication. And then it sort of snowballed from there. And then Nat Geo reached out to him and said that they want to feature his research. And they asked if he had any photos. And he said, yeah, I actually do. Let me ask this guy. So he emailed me and he said, Nat Geo wants to use one of your photos. Is that okay? And I said, yes, of course, obviously. And then I got CC'd on an email. And this lady just had me sign a little release. And I emailed the digital file. And that was it. So just sort of sitting on my couch, exchanging emails weeks after the fact. And it just became this, this really cool moment. Do they own the rights to that photograph now, or do you still, like, how how does that work in no. terms of publishing? Yeah, it's different. It's sort of just like a stock photo license is really all it is. So I granted them the use of that photo, but I still own it and can print it and do whatever. It wasn't like an exclusive use license. I think on that note, I think having a business degree and having that sort of background has really helped me a lot because I know how to read those documents and make sure that I didn't put myself in a bad spot. So I think that's something I'd encourage any photographer to do is to really understand like usage rights, license agreements, even just like Googling some sample ones to read them and understand them is huge because I mean, even now that's still one of my most popular photos when I post it on Instagram and I could have unintentionally signed away all my rights to that photo within a year of starting photography. So dodge the bullet there, but yeah, just really, really cool opportunity that sort of just came by chance and really all thanks to Rob for having me over in the right place at the right time. It is a pretty amazing set of circumstances though. I mean, just think about the average person just sitting at home and he's just taking a photograph of, I mean, the, the I, I do know some of what you're talking about, about the, uh, the ambistoma research, there's, there's mm-hmm. the, the whole species complex is now, I, I, I can't even, I mean, I'm going to start babbling and I'm going to completely like bastardize it because I'm not to do it justice. But I, I did sit in on some lectures about some of that research last year. And it's, it's wild. Like there are, their genetic composition is just, it's so bizarre. It's like they, they're like three of their like three parts of three different species. Yeah. And then one generation is like one part or two part, but, and then they're also really like stunningly beautiful too. But to have National Geographic just sort of kind of like hunt you down and say, hey, we want your photograph. I mean, that's got to be, I, I know when you say it like from a business perspective, yeah, there's there's stuff that has to happen. You know, you got to cross the T's, dot the I's, but it's still pretty amazing. Yeah. I mean, I, I could, still remember the moment like I'm just sitting in this recliner in my college apartment and my one roommate's home and I just look at him and I say holy shit I think I'm going to be a National Geographic and sure was <laughs> then you got to think to yourself like oh it's all it's all downhill from here <laughs> it's it's so weird like I look back on it now and I I do think like the biggest things that I the things that I feel are the biggest in my like career as a photographer really happened within like the first two years as I did that. Um, it wasn't a, a photo project, but I worked with Robin Moore, who's one of my favorite photographers is, uh, 
he's got a book in search of lost frogs which is a great read and he's an incredible photographer worked with him on some transcription services for this iguana documentary and i used that to buy my first like nice camera and then ended up sort of through that doing some work for the rainforest alliance i did a a thing called Frog Fact Friday for their Instagram for a while, did some product photography for them. And I look back now and I'm like, how did I even get into those situations? Because I had no idea what I was doing. I wouldn't call myself an expert now by any means, but I feel I'm significantly better than I was then. But all of those big opportunities were within my first year or two of picking up a camera, just right place, right time type of situations. Do you think that the subject matter also has something to do with it? Because, I mean, I'm not I'm not a photographer. I'm not really into the whole world of photography. My, my, my wife is. But how many people are out there taking pictures of dart frogs that you, that you know of? There's a lot more now. I think when I, when I first started, the Reptile Report was doing their, like, photo of the year category award, things like that. And it was a lot of like, like people were taking pictures, but not like studio style portraits. Um, Tyler Sladen was one guy who was doing mostly all, if not exclusively snakes. I watched his work a lot uh, starting out and I was like, okay, there are at least like some other people that are like trying to do this and make this a, a big thing. But I mean, now it's crazy when you get on social media, like how many people are are doing like the black and white background animal studio shots. It's, it's way different than it was five years ago. Do you want to tell us about some of the equipment that you use for your shoots or, uh, you know what, why don't we back up? Why don't we start off with some of the first equipment that you were using when you began Sure. and kind of walk us through the transition from then up until what you're using now equipment wise. Yeah. So my first camera was a Canon Rebel T3i, which I think is like four or five generations back. It's like just the go-to entry-level camera. And there's always like the Canon Nikon Sony debate. Um, but I, I really just bought that Canon to start with because my cousin is a, a professional photographer. He does like commercial work. Um, but he shot Canon and he's like, if you get Canon, you can borrow my lenses. And I was like, well, I'm going to get Canon then. Um, and then that's a crop sensor uh, DSLR. And then from there, I went to the 6D, the Canon 6D, which is a full frame DSLR. And then a couple years after that, I was looking to upgrade just more resolution, always hunting that. And sort of came to the realization that the next step up would be like their 5D series, which are pretty big, heavy cameras. And for about the same cost, I could switch over to a Sony mirrorless system, which is much smaller and lighter weight and a little bit better resolution. So switched over to mirrorless. Um, and yeah, I just I picked up a second Sony. I've just totally fallen in love with them. Uh, I just picked up their A7R4, uh, which is what I shot the new Rana Tomea poster with. And it just... Yeah, slowly evolved over time. I think lens-wise, really like 99% of the photos I take are with the Sony 90mm macro lens. 
when I was on Canon, I used their L series, 100 millimeter macro, really solid lens. Um, but yeah, it's it, I've got a lot, a lot of different gear, but I only use a few pieces of it pretty consistently. And a lot of the rest of it is like, well, maybe I want to take this shot one time. It's it's a dangerous game and an expensive game for sure. For the, I mean, you mentioned macro. I mean, for those of the listeners out there who aren't quite familiar, can you explain what macro photography is? Sure, I'll try. I always, I always joke like I, I take, I mean. It feels weird saying I take good photos, but I take I take good photos, but I could barely articulate to you how my camera functions. I just I know what my hands need to press on the camera to make it look how I want. Um, so macro photography is all like the really close up work that you see. And when you're looking at a an image that's like larger than life, like a ladybug that looks like huge and you can see all the tiny little details on it, that's what macro photography is. Um, you can get m- maybe a good way to compare it is like a lot of wildlife photography. You get like a close-up photo of a bear way out in the distance, but that's with a telephoto lens where it helps you zoom in. But macro is all about magnification of the subject and keeping those details. Do you have a stack images? I have played around with focus stacking a little bit. Um, it's very, very hard. <laughs> There's software that'll help you put the images together, but I mean, when you're doing that, the you're taking all those little slices of the image and you've got to get like sometimes 10 images just to have a millimeter of depth in your shot. Uh, so I typically avoid that unless I'm doing like still subjects like uh, preserved insects or something because there's absolutely no way you're going to get a little dart frog to sit still for 45 minutes in the exact same position to get all of those shots. So all of the frog stuff that I'm doing is just a single shot. Yeah, it's it's a we've done it here in my house. We've done it primarily with dead insects because they sort of stay still or we would take a like take a, a blue bottle fly, put it in a deli cup, stick it in the freezer and then bring it out, take a few photos. And then once it started to revive itself, then like the photo shoot was over, but yeah, yeah. You just, you got to work with the subject. And I mean, frogs aside, like the venomous snake stuff that I do, like you're even more limited in what you can safely do with those. So you kind of just have to do what you can that keeps you safe and also lets you work with the animal and keep the animal safe. That sort of leans into my next question. And having done photo shoots with my wife, which I, sometimes this takes a really, really long time. And you had alluded to it earlier about mm-hmm. the uh, salamander photographs, but a lot of time and effort goes into getting a good photo. And obviously, like you said, you're dealing with Ranatomea, which might just spring off into nowhere. Can you kind of walk us through the process of like what it takes to get a good photo? Like just say you want to set up a photo shoot for a specific frog. We'll just, we'll say something smaller because you're fond of Ranatomae. We'll just say Ranatomae sure. species. How do you set everything up? What's the process like? And when do you, I mean, when do you stop? You know, how long do you let it go on for? Yeah. So my typical setup, um, especially with the smaller animals like that, I use a light box that's got three sides on it and the, the top and the front are open. So I can get light down from the top if I want, and then the front obviously opens so I can get my camera in. 
but the sides are there to help diffuse light, but also to keep the animal in <laughs> because I can't just immediately drop my camera if it starts hopping away. I got to have some way to keep it contained. And then for the like base surface, I'll use a sheet of reflective acrylic, either black or white. Um, I mentioned using glass for the salamander shoot, but the acrylic is what gives you that really crisp reflection where glass is a little bit a little bit less opaque and you can start to like double up on the reflections and get some some weirdness there. So acrylic is what you want for that nice crisp reflection. And then set my lights up on the side and then for the animal I'll have one of like the tiny little cups that people use like for tadpoles, like those three and a half ounce things like you put ketchup in at a restaurant. Just like a quick little uh, thing to put over them. So I'll put them on the on the acrylic, put the little cup over them, get my gear all situated. And then once I'm ready, I'll lift up the cup, take a few pictures, put the cup back over. And if they're not sitting still, I'll try and give them a few minutes to see if they just like get used to it and figure out that like nothing bad is going to happen. But there are a lot of times where I just have to give up on the animal and it's just not going to sit still and I can't keep stressing it out. So you just have to sort of cut your losses and just say that one's not happening today and move on to the next one. The wrangling part of it is definitely difficult because when we would do, we, we would do primarily photo shoots in my house with, uh, with, with uh, white tree frogs because they're kind of lazy and they don't, they just, they have a very appealing presence, I guess, in a photograph. And after a while, you can even they're like, "All right, I've, I've had enough. I'm getting out of here." And then, yeah, <laughs> finally, when you get the lighting right and everything, and you get everything positioned the way you want it, the frog just decides not to cooperate anymore. Yeah, and it's there's a lot of like other logistical stuff too. Like when I went up to Jared's to shoot the new poster, we spent quite a bit of time talking through ahead of time. Okay, like what's the list of everything you've got? what's in a grow out tub now that you can grab easily versus in a tank that you're going to have to get into. And you've got to sort of plan the order in which you're going to do things so that you can actually get through them all. Like we shot the entire poster except for one frog in a day. So if you're going to shoot, uh, there are some different lines, import lines and stuff we didn't put on the poster, but we probably shot 65 to 70 frogs like different frogs in a day and you have to have a lot of planning and coordination with the person that has the animals to make that work. And two, like, uh, like when I shot at Mike Novi's years ago, people have different concerns and setups for like health and safety of the animals that you have to take into account. Like I keep these in different rooms because like these are newer imports. I don't want them coming in contact with other things or like only this species goes in this room and I want to keep that separate. So there's a lot of cleanliness and just wiping down and sterilizing everything between shots too sometimes. So actually taking the photos is probably the shortest amount of time of anything that happens on a shoot. Do you have any preference for lighting kits or, I mean, I'm assuming you do most of your photography inside. I mean, you're not using natural light from outside, right? Yeah, I don't, I don't do any natural light. They're all studio strobes. I think, Lighting is, it's tons of options and really just depends on what you prefer. 
I used to use like little speed lights, like those off-camera flashes that you can either put on your camera or mount separately. But I switched over to studio lights primarily. Um, just you typically get more power on those and you get better consistency in the light temperature. So like if you're talking like something looks too warm or too cool, you can usually dial in studio lights to be more consistently one color to make your editing a lot easier. And then with the strobes, you can get shorter flash duration, which helps stop a lot of movement for like shots of like a snake flicking its tongue out, or you might be able to squeeze in a couple more shots while the frog's starting to jump away that still look good and salvageable. Uh, so it's just little things like that, that as you start to learn what your style and the subject that you want to shoot, different lights are going to make sense for different circumstances. I've noticed that you're, I mean, I guess the majority, I haven't really seen any other one, but um, you tend to like to focus on just the animal itself and not being in a display tank or anything like that. Is there a particular reason you like to focus just on the animal, on a like a black or a white background, or do you ever think about maybe doing something like an incorporating like a piece of driftwood or, or plants or anything like that in the background? I think a lot of that really comes from just liking Joel Sartori's work the way, so he shoots on black and white backgrounds too. And he's put it several different ways, but he talks a lot about how the animals that he works with are either endangered or nearly extinct or just things that people don't see. And that clean background helps you really focus on the animal. And it also um, gives you a better ability to play with scale. Like he would print a tiny mouse the same size as he would an orangutan, for example. And I think just having that clean background gives you much more to work with and a different way to communicate scale. There are some shots like the snake stuff that I do is they're almost always on a branch. Um, just because they're arboreal species and they need something to hang on to or just helps them feel more secure and they don't want to slither away. But I think inspiration from his work and then personally just liking the very clean aesthetic that it gives, uh, I think are my two big reasons for going that route versus in-tank shots or something like that. It's also less stuff for the animal to crawl and hide behind and <laughs> escape to, so it makes things go a little bit quicker too. That's a good, that's a good point too. <laughs> Cause some of them are really shy. Yeah. We, I feel bad for Jared. He had to completely gut one of his tanks to get a Sorensis out for us to photograph, but he was like, Oh, I was going to redo it anyway. It's like, well, you're definitely going to do it now. So thanks. <laughs> you didn't even have to say it as soon as I heard Sorensis. That was, I knew that was going to be yeah. an ugly situation. Yeah. Can you tell us about some of your more memorable photo shoots? And it, it doesn't necessarily have to be frog related. I mean, I know you've done some work with venomous, uh, venomous mm-hmm. snakes and whatnot. I mean, are there any particular photo shoots that really stick out in your memory as being kind of unique or uh, maybe a little out of maybe a little out of control? Yeah. Um, the first, the first like big snake shoot that I did was like I I started out like really only doing frogs. Like Jared was the first person that I did like a full photo shoot with. Um, so I had always kind of been more on the amphibian side of things, but the first big snake shoot that I did up in Michigan, uh, with my friends, Josh and Brenna, 
Josh was uh, big into carpet pythons at the time. And I got to see a lot of just rare morphs, one of one type stuff. And that was just a really eye-opening shoot to me because as I'm sure you're aware, like morphs are not a thing in the frog hobby. And that sort of like pursuit of different albino mixes and things like that is a big no-no. Um, but in the snake world, I hadn't really been exposed to that. So that was really eye-opening, just how much more variation there is on that side of things than there is with frogs. And then I think another snake moment for sure, just sitting on the ground camera in hand across from a 15-foot king cobra is <laughs> definitely memorable. That was just... I don't think I'd ever had one of those, like, movie moments where everything around you gets quiet and it's like the only thing that's happening is what you're seeing and everything else is in slow motion that was the first one of those moments i think i've ever felt and i think apart from that i mean i honestly get just as excited going to jared's no matter how many times i've been there because there's always something different or like i don't know like an imitator that has a slightly odd spotting pattern or something like that it's Everything's always exciting and memorable in its own ways. But I think those would be some of the, the more exciting ones that I think about on a regular basis. Dark frogs seem to have both composition and subject going in their favor because they're just mm-hmm. there's so much going on with them. They really don't even need anything else. Yeah, I mean, the, the colors are crazy. I think... There are some that might not get as much love as others, like some of the Flava Vitata Renatomea that are a little bit more on like the brown muted color side. And really in general, like any reptile or amphibian that's like brown, beige, and those more muted tones tend to not be as uh, well-received on Instagram. But there's definitely a lot of variety. The irony is that most of the little brown frogs are the ones that are the, the most endangered too because they get no they get no photo right. coverage yeah it's like like the femoralis that i used to have like they're a tiny brown frog and same with a phyllobates lugubris like also a small brown frog but they're stunning animals but they just sort of slowly disappear from the hobby and not many people work with them because they're not bright green or bright orange or crazy looking it's just more of that acquired taste, I guess, but it's it's sad to see them sort of be harder to find. It took me quite a while to find a single person that was breeding those lugubris that I eventually got. The hobby does seem to go through cycles, and um, I mean, I'm still in awe of certain species that I guess most people just sort of look at as like old hat, and maybe it's just because, I mean, like I said earlier, having looked at Ufaga Pamilio in 1985, 86, 87, when I was a little kid, that image never got out of my head. And I was like, there's, I mean, even when the, the dart frog hobby started in the mid, mid nineties or so, I was like, even then I'm like, I'm never going to see these things. This is just going to be like a figment of my imagination. And I'm still so impressed by just, just blue jeans, which people kind of consider almost like, like a trash species because they get imported by the, you know, probably by the thousands. To me, that's still a really impressive frog, but they kind of fall out of favor or, or certain species no longer have that appeal, I guess, just because of whatever reasons they're too readily available or 
they're just not challenging enough or, or whatever it is. I mean, I just, maybe that's just me being like an old man because I still, I'm like, I mean, I'm still fascinated by bearded dragons, you know? I mean, bearded dragons are like, again, like a, like a trash species. I have a wild type and I, I, I love it because I saw it in a book when I was a kid and I remember thinking I'll never own this thing and now I do. And to me, it's, to me, it's pretty awesome anyway. Yeah, I, I think, I think social media contributes to that a lot too, where there's just like a lot of fad hype that goes on. Like, I mean, look at like the past year or so, right before COVID started, finding anybody that had mint terribilis was nearly impossible. Like everyone wanted them. Nobody had them. People were paying obscene prices. And now we're already back to a point where like so many people have them and they can't get rid of them because they're, they were just too late on that wave. So things just come and go so frequently. But I think, I think the people that stick around in the hobby long enough, just find what they like and just shamelessly stick to it. Like if, if I went out and got back into frogs, I would go get Luke's immediately, like 30, $40 frog. The, one of the more common ones those are always going to be my favorite. And I would, if I could only keep one, that's what I would keep. So it's just, I think it's what people fall into and realize what they like keeping. I've never kept Luke's actually. That's one of the, I guess the big, big four that I've never kept. Yeah. I just really on any animal, just that yellow and black color combination, like fire salamanders, super cool. You can get some of that on like eyelash vipers more. So just like the yellow there, but, just that yellow and black color combo is always going to be my favorite. My next question, and we, we sort of kind of hinted at this, but we really didn't get into it. Now, in the world of social media, Instagram in particular, like we we kind of talked a little bit before we got started about how Instagram is essentially just a, a visual media and what with all the filters and everything like that, it makes it easy for someone to take a really a poor quality photograph and I don't want to say make it a good photograph, but you can cheat by like jacking up the contrast and, and the saturation you you're kind of, you're taking, I mean, you're not adding anything to the composition or the subject or, or anything like that. I mean, it's still a crappy photo, but you're almost giving people eye candy by accentuating certain things. So how, how do you, distinguish yourself as a legit photographer among people who are i mean again we're thinking about people who are scrolling through posts really really quickly you know what i mean so how do you distinguish yourself from that type of stuff yeah i think that's even outside of like the focus of like animal photography like what is a good photo and who's like a quote-unquote real photographer is always the debated question i think personally overall like composition in a photo for me is really what matters above all else um you could have like a totally blurry photo but if it's composed well and really like communicates motion in the frame or helps to tell a story it can be a stunning photo even if it's like technically horrible like not in focused blurry all of those things so I think to an extent, like it's much easier to take a better technical quality photo with your cell phone now, or really anything that's got a camera on it. Now you can take higher resolution, like the new iPhone pros can shoot their own version of raw photos. And there's a ton of data there. 
and you can manipulate those photos. But at the end of the day, for me, if you don't have that composition and like that artistic vision in the photo, there's no amount of filter and contrast that's really going to compensate for that. It might make it look flashier because if, especially like in animal photos, if you see something that's really oversaturated, they get that glowing look to them and it can be cool, but it really just comes down to that composition again for me. And I think, I don't think that's, it won't change in my mind. Like I think composition is always going to change, but you can go pick up, like, like I said, a cell phone and take a photo that's about as good as anything else with a DSLR at a quick glance. But where I think those still fall short is when you try and start printing work or you need to do like a much larger size. Like I've done some prints before that are like three by four feet and you can't do that size at like a cell phone photo quality. Like you've got to have the resolution and the detail there and a filter is not going to help you with that either. There's some crazy technology out there. I think Topaz is one of them where Topaz can really sharpen and enhance an image really, really well. It's quite impressive. But at the end of the day, giving yourself the best starting place in a photo is really what's going to make the other stuff impactful, like the filters, the colors, and all of that. Do you ever use any kind of, I mean, I, I don't mean like to embellish it, but I mean, let's just say that you wanted to tweak something or other. Do you use any any programs like Photoshop or anything like that or, or, or like any kind of photo oh, editing? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, I mean, so especially with animals, like they're moving so much and who knows what's going to happen. So you kind of have to set yourself up for the best success you can. But like sometimes my backgrounds are not perfectly black or perfectly white or I don't know, an animal's got like a piece of stuck shed on it, but it's a venomous snake and I can't just go pluck it off like it's a leaf on a dart frog or something. So like there's always going to be that level of editing and you've also got to adjust it so it looks correct where you intend to view it. So when I print a photo, those files look very different on my computer than that same photo that I'd put on Instagram because you have to adjust the color to match the printer and all of that, those details. So if I took a print photo and put it on Instagram, you'd be like, well, that looks really off and weird. But if I printed my Instagram posts, they'd look so oversaturated and weird. So you, you have to come in still and adjust those things. And as you adjust exposure, you even got to use the saturation tool to help compensate for like a loss of color in a highlight or something like that. Like it's not to say that filters and adjusting saturation and contrast are all bad. They all have their place. But I think there's a difference in using like a preset filter or like whatever swiping through the different options on Instagram versus making intentional choices about each of those pieces that makes up that filter. I often wonder how much photography on Instagram, I guess in certain, in certain niches, but I wonder how much things trend in terms of what type of filters are used and what people consider to be a good photograph. Because I mean, you'll see some people they use, what is it like uh, noir I think it is like mm -hmm. the black and white filter that has sort of yeah. a, like a gritty kind of like, you know, documentary sort of look to it. I mean, I, I like that personally. It's appealing to me visually, yeah. 
But again, I mean, had it not been for Instagram, I wouldn't have known it was there. So I wonder, you know, do they research into what people's habits are, what filters they're choosing, and then make those more accessible? Or are they just kind of going off of like what real photographers do and trying to offer that same type of filter available? I mean, like preset filters and stuff. And I mean, even so I use Capture One as my editing software primarily. And you can buy like filter packages within those platforms that are built by photographers. It's all, they're all built by people that know like what a good grainy black and white photo looks like. Like it's, it's all stuff that's like made by professionals for people that don't understand what a specific contrast slider is going to do. It's about bringing like that accessibility to everybody. Because I think at the end of the day, like everybody knows in their mind what they think a good photo looks like but not everybody understands all the different layers and sliders and things that have to go into place to make that happen so that's really all those filters are is just help help make that more accessible with less technical knowledge which again like there's nothing wrong with that (laughs) i think you see a lot of good photographers like you could have them where they manually adjusted everything and then they could also just put a filter on it and it would look the same. It's all just in the knowledge behind it and the approach and who the person is. But end of the day, a good photo is still going to be a good photo. I mean, I'm going to assume that you shoot in manual, right? Um, yes, I do. Um, I shoot manual, but then autofocus. Um, I think there's a big, and maybe this is just my impression, but I feel like people that manually focus or like manually focus is viewed as like this higher skill, which it definitely is. But for animal photography, it is just not realistic. Like the animals move too quickly and you've got to just get the shot as quick as you can. And you don't have the time to move the, move the focus ring around. And I mean, Sony and I believe Canon has it as well. They have eye autofocus where for most animals and I, tested it and it works pretty decently on reptiles too not just like dogs and cats the camera can tell where the eye is and focus on that specific point for you but even taking away that barrier and making that easier still sort of comes back to composition you can have an animal that's totally perfectly in focus and it's a technically flawless shot but if the composition is weird then it all sort of falls flat while we're on composition, I do want to ask you about one photo that's that's definitely not a frog photo. I think it was a sidewinder. You had some kind of snake that was in what looks like um, like sprinkles for like you'd put on like a cupcake. How, how did you? How yes. did that happen? Uh, so they are cake sprinkles, uh, an obscene amount of them. I think I bought, man, I bought I bought bulk sprinkles on Amazon. I bought a whole case of them. It was a lot. That's about like, well, like a 12 by 18 pan or something like that. That's like an inch and a half deep. So it's a lot of sprinkles. <laughs> um, that one, I don't know. Like I just, my friend sent me a video of that snake in sand. And I was sort of like thinking of like my color background work that I've done. And I just randomly had an idea. I was like, I think it would be really funny if the snake looked like it was in a ball pit, like at McDonald's play place or something like that, and just sort of taking this really dangerous thing and putting it in a comical situation and talk through them like they're sugar cake sprinkles, so it shouldn't hurt the snake, right? Now we're all good. So I was like, okay, well, 
next time I come up there, I'm going to have a lot of sprinkles and we're going to see what happens. And it worked out. It's just a, a random, wouldn't that be funny type of idea. It is actually really funny because there was back in the, the days of Steve Irwin, there was this other guy, what was his name? I think it was Manny something. And I mean, this is totally awful by today's standards, but he, he wrestled an anaconda in a ball pit, like at a kid's yeah. place like that. And it's funny because even though there's there sprinkles, when I, when I looked at that photograph, I thought to myself, I was like, this is like, like a monster in, in a ball pit, just <laughs> waiting to like prey on some unsuspecting yeah. person. And I'm always, I always think too, when I've got these ideas, like what, what's like the optics of that situation going to be? Because like, I mean, I definitely take strike photos of snakes and things like that, that are a little bit like inflammatory, but I don't want that sort of inflammatory, crazy type content to be my brand. So I'm always really aware of like, okay, here's this idea to put a snake in sprinkles. How's this going to look? How's this going to come across? What's the potential impact there? And then apart from that, like, is this even safe to do with the animal? And I think trying to balance those things is often difficult. And there just been some ideas that just aren't going to work and you have to move on. Do you have any ideas that haven't worked that you want to share? Because, um, I've, I've failed miserably many, many, many times in my pathetic attempt at, uh, setting up, you know, what I think is going to be interesting photo shoot. I mean, there are any examples of things that have not worked out for you? Yeah, I think maybe like conceptually wise, not similar to like the snake and sprinkles, but I'll just like envision a type of shot. Um, like when I was at Troy's this last time, for example, we did some more frogs on fruit. And I had him pick out a couple pieces of fruit and put different frogs on them. And some of those just didn't turn out the way I envisioned. Like I posted some of like on an orange, a strawberry and a blackberry, but we had a lemon too. And it just didn't pan out the way I wanted it to look. Um, some, some of the photos like on the colored backgrounds that I've done, the color just didn't match or the idea didn't pan out. I did. I did a small series where I went to the hardware store and got paint chips uh, with the hole in them. So it's meant to like put over your wall to compare your current color with the new color. And I wanted to like hold those up to animals. So the animal color is showing through and try and match it to like a Sherwin Williams color that you can buy off the wall. And I think it kind of worked, but not really. So there's always, there's always little things where, in my head, they look a lot better than they do in real life, but that's just always going to have those moments. What about your brand? You obviously have a very unique brand that you've worked very hard to create. You have a certain style, which is very, very distinct. How mm -hmm. do you pr protect your brand from people who might be using the image without permission? And I mean, just, just, you know, truth be told, you know, my pathetic Instagram page, when I put a photo up, to promote an episode, I always ask the people for permission in, in writing first beforehand because sure. I don't want to take anybody's photograph without permission. But do you have that problem where you, I mean, especially with Instagram, it's got to be notorious with people pirating other people's content. But do you ever have issues where people are using your, your images without your permission? Yeah, I mean, it's constant. It's sort of, it's just the unfortunate reality of the situation. It's too easy. And I think 
you'll see it too, like just people reposting things on Instagram where they might like mention me in the comment that I took the picture, but they'll crop out my watermark. And some of it I think is just honestly people don't don't think about it and don't understand like how that looks and what that means to the artist. But then other things like the isopod poster that I did, I think you can still go on like wish.com or something like that and they're somehow printing it as a rug, which I don't there's not an unwatermarked like an all over watermarked image. So I don't know how they're making that. I'd be curious to see what they look like in person, but it's pretty inescapable. But when I try to and like have control over the situation, like someone asked me to use a photo for uh, like today, for instance, someone um, needed a photo for a, a YouTube thumbnail, like we talked about earlier, I would have them sign a license agreement. Um, and it's obviously enforceable, but I think it just helps create a better tone when you can have that conversation too. Like, Hey, I know you want to buy this photo and use it, but like, I do take this very seriously and you have to understand that. And some people are like, Oh, I don't want to sign that. Never mind, And that's fine. And other people are like, yeah, no problem. Totally get it. And they sign it. No problem. And we move on. So I think really, as soon as you put anything online, it's, it's really fair game in the sense that it's, open for that to happen and then it really just comes down to how much time and effort do you want to spend chasing down all those people and unless there's clear money at stake uh best of luck following up on those copyright infringements i've got a few friends that are like years deep in those battle and it's just not getting anywhere so just unfortunate reality but i think it's worth it at the end of the day where it might have someone repost an image without credit but I can turn around and use that same platform to sell prints and grow my own presence and meet different people who are doing like different art forms that I can collaborate with. So I think the pros definitely outweigh the cons, but it's just, it's something that you just have to live with. Do you ever sell like, well, let's just say for example, if someone wanted to license one of your images, mm-hmm. do you collect a fee for that? Or I mean, do you draw any kind of an income off of, off of your photographs? Yeah, so print sales, obviously, for like people to hang up in their home. For stock photo stuff, um, I've done stock photos, album artwork, uh, museum displays, random things like that. Um, I'll license all of that for a fee, just sort of depends on use. My big thing is that I don't put my photos on stock photo websites, but you can license them as a stock photo from me. And the big reason for that is just control over image use like i the last thing i want is i mean you've seen a lot in the news unfortunately like cobra escaped so-and-so's home in whatever state it's happened a lot the past year all of those news stations are going to stock photo websites to get their snake photos and the last thing i want is one of my photos to be associated with that or have like my friend's animals associated with that So I don't put them up on those stock photo websites so that I have more control over who gets to use them and for what. And I'm pretty explicit, like, hey, if you need a photo, like you need to tell me how you're going to use it and be pretty thorough in how you describe it. And I write the licensing agreement specifically for that use case and that only so that there's no deviation from that just to protect myself and protect the people who own the animals that I work with. That's really impressive, actually, that you go through all that effort because, I mean, the average person doesn't have to do that, but the fact that you 
go through. I mean, I, I'm just from one guy to another. I respect you a lot for doing that because, um, you know, I, I follow the news too. And on my, you know, my feed from uh, Gmail or whatever you want to call it, I get all these nut job stories about people and, you know, an escaped Cobra or, or, or whatever. Mm-hmm. And I look at the accompanying photograph and it's not the same species or it's something else. Right. After a while, when you get, it's like a, a canned image, you know what I mean? Like for anyone, it's yeah. like, doesn't get that analogy. It's like ready-made images that are just like ready to go. Like you open up the can and there it is. You don't have to think about it. And after a while, you get kind of good at it. If you're familiar with a certain species or group of species or whatever, but I mean, have you ever had anybody reach out to you and try to, you know, use your photograph to put like a negative spin on, on the hobby or, or anything like that? Not like that. I mean, there have been people that have reached out that like, they want to just different stuff. Like they want to use my photos for like their displays at shows or they need a banner and they need an image. And I'm careful with that too, because I mean, unfortunately there are, really as the case with any hobby there are some people that do it really well and some people that cut corners and you mentioned like my brand earlier i think it really just comes down to protecting that and making sure that if my image is going to appear next to something that i believe in support that and not just going like uh i'm not sure how i feel about this but i could use like 75 bucks right now or whatever like i'm fortunate that i have a day job where i can be picky and choosy with my artwork but I think it really just comes down to that at the end of the day. Like, is if I saw this, would I be proud to say, like, hey, that's my photo up there? That's that's really the the ultimate question in any situation like that for me. I agree with you that n- not relying on it exclusively for your, your financial gain because, look, I, I don't make any money off of this show. I just do this because it's something that I enjoy. But at the same time, I have, I have full control over the content because if I don't want to do this show, I don't do the show. I'm not beholden to anybody, but, you know, obviously I don't make a living off of this show because, I mean, who the hell's going to make a living off of this? <laughs> I'm not Joe Rogan, but, right. um, you know, I, I have a day job. I have, you know, I have a career that, that I am able to live fairly well off of, and I'm thankful for that, but it seems like when you're not desperate for a couple of bucks, like you said, you can kind of protect your own artistic integrity and... I could, we touched on this earlier, but, um, the fact that you have some, some business skills and you're mm-hmm. pretty savvy with negotiating and, and contracts and things like that. I can just say that when I was a younger person, when I was in my twenties doing music, I mean, I was in a band that got signed to a minor label and during the negotiation process, we were, you know, I was 20, I was 21 years old. I, I knew nothing. I didn't know anything about entertainment law or, or royalties or residuals or anything like that. So the contract that we got was basically just, I don't want to say exploitive, but had I gone back and not thought about myself like, well, I really want this opportunity and I know that this is the only, you know, hindsight is twenty twenty. Had I gone back in time knowing right. then what I know now, I would have negotiated a more realistic contract that would have been more in line with our needs as opposed to what the label wanted to profit off of us. Yeah, and it's, Again, like just the ability to pick and choose is a serious luxury and not every, especially not every artist has that. I think just the art world in general is very difficult, but it's, it's definitely something I've been thankful for that like, I'll have people reach out like, Hey, can you come do a shoot of my animals? I need it to look like X, Y, and Z. 
I'll just say no. Like either you want me to come and let me do my thing the way I want to, or I'm not going to. And that's been a blessing that I have the ability to do that because I have a job apart from this that pays the bills and gives me the freedom to do the photography stuff. But I think, I think I wouldn't enjoy it as much as I do if I had to say yes to things that I didn't want to do very frequently. If money was no object, and I mean, you, you could use whatever equipment, whatever location, whatever species, whatever it is, what would your dream photo shoot be like? Oh, man. That's, that's a tough one. I think a few animals that are top of my list right now, um, top of the list, but there's, this is where the money is no object thing comes in because there's a lot of stipulations around them. A Galapagos tortoise. I would love to photograph one of those. Um, and then the, I think it's a Borneo earless monitor. Um, but especially with the monitor and they've come, been quite the topic of conversation lately, just how legality of exports, but now they're in zoos and all of that. Um, it would be going to a place where it's okay to do that. <laughs> That's another, another thing that I always try and keep in mind is just like, okay, what is this animal? What's like the background behind the overall feeling about it? Because I'm not trying to, not trying to get into like situations where like, I don't know, fish and wildlife is knocking on my door saying, where'd you get that? <laughs> so I think I'd use the money to go find things that are somewhat available and accessible now, but in a setting that's appropriate. So nothing like crazy, but there's two pretty, pretty standard animals that are just on my want list. I, I would have to get in a time machine because there is a, species of there's a species of frog that was native to Madagascar I, for the life of me the scientific name is, is eluding me at the moment but uh, I think it was like it, it was like Beelzebufo like the devil's toad mm -hmm. it, it yeah was, I know what you're talking about yeah 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 I would I would yeah. have to go I, I've always been fascinated by things that people have never actually set eyes on so mm -hmm. I would I always fantasize about like I mean the dinosaurs are boring because you know we the dinosaurs are played out but I, I often think about yeah. long, long, way long extinct species of amphibians, like back in like the Devonian period, like millions of years before the dinosaurs. And I just wonder what sort of color schemes they would have had and what they would yeah. have looked like. And you know, that's for me, that would have been interesting. Yeah. If you, if you haven't read it, that book I mentioned earlier in search of lost frogs is an incredible read because it's about like the, I think it's still ongoing, but the project where, I think it was mainly with the IUCN and they just went out to find things that had not been seen in quite some time to see if they were still out there. And it's like, it's a group of people going to the rainforest to look for frogs, but there's like militia and people with guns and all of this crazy action in the book. And it's, it's a really fascinating read, but also a, a mix of encouraging and disheartening that some stuff is still there and some stuff is probably not there. But I think that, tells that overall story well of like seeing things that people haven't seen and having that moment that would be an incredible thing to experience yeah catch it catch it well before it's gone mm. do you ever think about teaching photography you ever think about offering classes or anything like that 
I have. Um, I've thought about it. <laughs> Not I have done it. Um, I did. I've done a couple Twitch streams, and life got a little bit chaotic, and I haven't kept up on that. It's something I'd like to do, but I think my big stumbling blocks are one. I'm generally an introverted person. I cannot be like the always on happy, excited teacher. Um, and two, I, even though like it's, if you're inside like the reptile hobby, overall, it's pretty niche still like going like, and like doing a class or presentation at like a local library. What are people going to take from that? Like that would almost have to be more about the animals and the experience and a photo class. And I think part of the thing that would make a class hard too is um, having a a setup, an environment where you can actually have animals there for people to do it for real and not just me talking through it. Because explaining how to take a photo of a Ranitamea, like I did earlier, sounds really easy. You just put it on there, you put the cup over it, take the cup off, take a photo, and you're done. But what happens if it hops away? And the hesitation I have there is like, I have friends I could probably call that would bring those animals, but is it good for those animals to put them in a situation where someone's photographing them that doesn't really know what they're doing or how to behave around the animal, what to look for to see if the animal's stressed, and how could you do a class of that with like 20 some people or even five to 10 people and keep a handle on everything that's going on? I feel like there would just be such a huge logistical undertaking to keep the animals safe. And it, it's almost not worth that to me. I think, who is it? There's, there's one guy up in Canada that I know has done some workshops with uh, understory enterprises. And obviously that's the dream scenario, right? Because you've got a big facility, a team of people that know what they're doing and a photographer to teach you. But I just haven't found that mix of people, animals, and environment that all makes sense uh, to do that at this point. So I, I try and, like I said, do some stuff on Twitch to show how I edit. People message me on Instagram pretty frequently and ask, how, I, how would I take that shot? Or like, what do you use for the reflection? And I always answer those questions. Like, I'm always happy to talk about it if people reach out. Um, can't always get to everybody, unfortunately, but I do what I can. And I think that helps fulfill that. And I've it's it's been cool to talk to some people and see them start down their own photography path and see where that leads them. So that's exciting too. But as far as like a big in-person class or something like that, I'm not not sure when that would be on the horizon. Yeah, I meant more of just like a fundamentals of like macro or or something like that. I don't necessarily oh, okay. mean yeah. like um I didn't necessarily mean like, you know, bring dart frogs somewhere and have people yeah. photograph them, which would be cool, but I understand you mean the, the limitations of that. Yeah. I think even like fundamental stuff, it's sort of like what I talked about earlier. Like I, I took one photo class. My cousin's given me a lot of pointers, but a lot of it is just me teaching myself and knowing the technical details. Like I, I legitimately could not explain to you right now how my camera sensor turns light into an image. I have no idea. And part of me would be nervous to get up in front of a class knowing how like little of the technical stuff I feel like I know and just looking like, like, how does this guy, how did he get here? What is he, what is he doing? How does he know any of this? I think that thought is there too. 
Well, if it's any comfort, I I don't really know too much about what I'm doing here either. <laughs> sure. I, I have this. What's that thing like the the people? Oh, there's a there's a name for it. The people that know the least about something are most often the ones confident in their knowledge, and it's the ones who know the most are least confident. Yeah. Maybe I'll just make myself feel better, and you can feel better too. That that's the part that we fall into. We just know so much that we think we don't know anything. Yeah, I think it's the, do the best you can with what the, what you have. Is because, right. I mean, I'm looking at my setup now, and it's this like Frankenstein's monster here in my closet. And I I I I talk to other podcasters from time to time, and we've talked about equipment and stuff like that, and everyone does it differently. And I've learned as much as I could from watching some YouTube tutorials, but primarily about how to incorporate different pieces of equipment. Like my laptop went through an update and I, I do my editing through GarageBand because it's free on the laptop. And I had to, I had to relearn the whole program all over again because they don't give you instructions with this. You know what I mean? So I, I had to figure out this completely like ass backwards way of, of learning it again. And I'm like, I, I, I should know what I'm doing. I should understand the theory behind this. I should understand the technology. And I have no idea. Right. I think the other thing too is like sort of almost going back to like the composition mindset and just how you approach photography. Like what I do is not technically difficult. You don't have to have thousands of dollars in equipment. Like you can buy a $20 sheet of acrylic buy a camera and a couple lights and you can take a photo of an animal on a black and white background. So anybody can really do it. It's just once you get obsessed with it and trying to perfect all the details, that's when that knowledge starts really kicking in. But at its core, like you can do what I do with your cell phone, like just about any photography equipment and a black or white surface and you're good. Well, we're kind of winding down to the end here and we've, I have a million more questions that come up. This always happens. I have more questions come up than, uh, than I have, uh, on the list, but sure. I wanted you to share your thoughts about the, the dart frog hobby in terms of like where you think it is and where do you think it's, it's going to end up going in the next uh, few years or so. Winding down on time and you ask another hour long question. <laughs> I think Honestly, a lot similar to the things we talked about with photography. So I mentioned like when I started, Facebook didn't really have information or people on it following frog stuff. Um, I think similar to photography where things are just much more accessible and it's easier, there are a lot of benefits, but then there are potential drawbacks to that. So it's so much easier. Like I, I help run the frog room Facebook page for example there's thousands of people on that page it's so easy to post a question and get dozens of answers within a couple minutes so similar to photography it's easy to take a picture and just slap a filter on it but the downside is it's that technical knowledge that i think lacks sometimes and that's always a concern and i think the immediate response to that is like oh you're just like like people that are in the hobby for a while are like, oh, they're gatekeeping and they're like making this harder than it has to be. And it's not hard to keep dart frogs. Like they're successful because you can keep them in your house at room temperature. Like (laughs) they're easy, but it's just like the little nuance and stuff. And like, uh, like you mentioned at the top of the show, like what to do if your frog gets sick or what to look out for, how to even know what you're looking at, what type of plants and things to put in. And I think Facebook 
creates a platform where more people can share more opinions faster. Whereas on places like Dendroboard, like you have to sign up for a forum account. You have to learn how to use the forum. It's not as aesthetically beautiful as Facebook. And you have to really look for the information that you're after. And there are there's a clear indication on those things like who's been around for a while and knows what they're doing versus the person on Facebook, you have no idea if they even have frogs. So I think that's sort of my current hesitation, just how do we keep like the knowledge of proper care and things like that at the front of people's minds and help navigate situations where it's like, oh, did you guys see like the new whatever color frog that came in from South America and and the knowledge and stuff being there not to say like, oh, well, that's from Brazil. You probably shouldn't have that. It's not a good thing for the hobby. Like just that lack of control of the flow of information and how it's processed, I think is one of the bigger concerns on my mind. But overall, I mean, it's obviously I loved keeping frogs and it's great. And I want more people to have that experience. So whether it's through like, like I've had people for frogs and photography say like, oh, your Instagram like really got me hooked on these. And I bought my first frogs or I bought my first camera. I think social media provides that, which is incredible because people can help each other, like find a passion that can really change their life. Like. I wouldn't be where I'm at if I didn't see, like, if I didn't see those frogs in the pet store and then get online and see this whole world of people that are also interested in that thing, wouldn't be where I'm at. So it's a a lot of pros and cons with the accessibility of information. I hope for the future that things continue to move towards like a more sustainable approach. I think a lot of stuff that gets imported, like you mentioned the blue jeans earlier. Granted, Pamilio are not like high volume breeders or things like that, but I'd like to see more of a reliance on the hobby supporting itself and not just importing a frog that you can get for $30, $40 anyway. Uh, I think that'd be my biggest hope. But I think as long as it keeps as long as it keeps going, people are still interested and there are opposing views and people to help help each other along the way that we'll we'll get to a good place. I agree with you say about the quality of information because I mean, I'm not on Facebook or Twitter or any of that stuff. I don't have any real reason to be, I don't like, I find that information that's generally easily obtainable is not always the best information. And mm-hmm. if you really want quality information, you you really have to search. And I will say that for people who are advanced in the hobby to the point where they've been in it for a long time and yeah these are expert people i can understand why people would want to be a a gatekeeper so to speak because Mm -hmm. you want to vet the people that are coming into this hobby because it's very easy to come in to really any hobby and over you know watch a few youtube videos follow a few posts participate in a few forums and then within six months you're presenting your self off as an expert and you know, who the hell are you? Because like when I, you know, part part of my professional career no longer, but for 15 years was was a plumber Mm -hmm. and passing the, the, um, the licensing test here in in New York area is, is very difficult. It's, it's a long Mm -hmm. process. And there were guys who failed and the, the instructor said, basically he said, look, he goes, he goes, you didn't want it bad enough. And the guy said, what do you mean? He goes, well, you understand the science of plumbing, but you didn't understand the art of it. 
and they would mm-hmm. they failed the, they failed the guy because he didn't take it seriously they they knew that he was just going to kind of come in get this license not really do the right job and then probably go out of business in 6 months so i can understand why people want to vet others because you don't want someone to come into the hobby create a presence spread poor quality or or misinformation and then just disappear out of the hobby leaving right. that online legacy which will perpetuate you know into eternity yeah and i think the other piece too is just like the the view of like what's at stake like asked all the time like here like what equipment do you use or like if i want to take photos like you what should i buy here's your ten thousand dollar shopping list go ahead and if you fail you're broke sorry with an animal like there's a life at stake there right like you're not just it's not just you taking on all the risk of like blowing a paycheck on something stupid it's like you spent all of this money on all of these animals and now they're all potentially like dead or sick and i think that's a concern that a lot of people have too and it's trying to come to an understanding that on social media not all the time but most of the time people that might disagree with you especially like on husbandry practices and things like that aren't like coming at you as a person but like they're just trying to look out for the best interest of the animal and i think it's so hard to read tone and things like that over text so everything just turns into an argument and a huge debate where it's like what you're doing is not technically wrong but like you could do it better or there's a safer way to do it or there's something that's more beneficial to the the animal and here's the research behind that that's the stuff that quickly gets lost to just in like the argumentative nature of social media that's one of the reasons why i'm often reluctant to like even when you when you and i had texted back and forth prior to this interview i started thinking to myself i said i really i, I could, i'm trying to feel them out based on the the tone here even though i know i can't do that and um right. you know when you when i got you on the phone you're you're you know you're pretty calm kind of mellow guy and it's so hard to pick someone's intentions, someone's personality out just based on something mm-hmm. that they, they, they write in a text because there's, there's no way of knowing what kind of mood the person was in and, you know, you know, was he being serious? Was he joking? You know, and it's like you, you lose that. You're right. You lose that in an online yeah. presence. And that's it. Like with my shoots, for example, like you, I can think of a few exceptions, but in general, I won't go shoot with somebody if I don't have a personal friend that has met that person in real life that will vouch for them. Like maybe it's a little bit crazy and limiting, but like you got to have that connection because I can't, can't always gauge like your level of care of animals or how you are as a person over a few quick Facebook or Instagram messages. And it's, it's all about the same thing. Just like what, what are you getting into? Who's the person on the other end? And, where's their head at as far as like the interest and safety of the animals yeah that can be that can be tough definitely definitely tough yes well i'd love to i'd love to go on but we're kind of we're kind of strapped for time but um can you tell the listeners where they can get some of your prints and be able to see some of your work either on instagram or or elsewhere yeah um i do post on facebook but instagram is really the hub of everything for me uh, the username is I am making art. So it's I A M M A K I N G A R T. Hope I spelled that right. Uh, a lot of people think it's I am king art and it's this very like narcissistic 
statement that I'm making. It's not true. It's I am making art. Um, and if you go there, you can see all of my work. And then there's a link to uh, my Etsy where you can pick up prints. Um, I've taken a lot of photos. Not all of them are on my Etsy, but if anyone ever sees anything that they want, you can just shoot me a message and I can likely print it for you. Um, and yeah, like we talked about earlier, if you need a stock photo type thing for something, also here for that, really here for any project that I feel like aligns with my views on animal keeping and all of that. So always down to work and collaborate with people. No, it's good stuff. Good stuff. All right. Well, Zach, I want to thank you so much for coming on the show. I'd, I'd honestly wanted to get you on for a long time and I'm actually really happy that you reached out to me personally. So, uh, you know, again, from, uh, you know, one creator to another, I want to, uh, thank you for, uh, coming on and giving us a great interview. I, again, I'd, I'd love to go on, but, um, we're kind of tapped out here, so. <laughs> yeah, maybe maybe we'll do a part two someday. But, but yeah, it was a really good conversation. I enjoyed it a lot. It's always good to talk to people that have something like uh, in common and a shared interest. Yeah, yeah. No, no, I appreciate it. It's, um, you know, it's, it's great to talk with uh, like-minded people about something that you enjoy. Agreed. Yeah, so. All right, everyone out there, I hope you guys enjoyed this episode. Again, it was a real pleasure having Zach on the show. Uh, we're going to see what comes up. I've got a couple of things coming up in the next couple of weeks that I hope you guys are going to really, really get into. And, uh, yeah, other than that, it's been a great night. Hope you guys enjoyed it. Catch up with you again soon.